If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 8, 40 through 56 reads like this. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When, uh, when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child. Arise, And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Howard Thurman once observed that as we live life, we get distracted, we have many cares pulling us in different directions. And sometimes it's kind of like our soul gets divided and distracted, and part of my soul is pointing this way, and part of my soul is pointing that way, and part of it's pointing that way, and we have a hard time focusing and being fully present Anywhere. Can anybody relate to that? So what Howard Thurman said is sometimes the first spiritual discipline that we need is just to come into the presence of God and say, God, gather up the fragments of my soul. Bring me back to one place to be fully present in your presence. Kind of like Psalm 8611 says, unite my heart to fear your name. So I would love to take a second to bow our heads right now and just pray that God will help our hearts and minds and souls to be fully present in his presence with eyes open to Jesus, with ears open to Jesus this morning. Would you do that with me? Let's bow our heads. 
Our Father God, we love you. We thank you for sending Jesus to save us. Jesus, we worship you and honor you in this place, Son of God. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Give us hearts that trust you fully and love you fully. Give us attentive minds. Retentive memories. Touch us by your Holy Spirit to minister to us in places that we may not even know we need to be ministered to. Bringing truth and healing, redirecting us, helping us repent if that's what's needed, comforting us. We want to make ourselves available to you and say, have your way with us, Lord. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Verse 40 of our text says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. And I'll remind you what that means. For several weeks, we were studying the ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. Everybody say Galilee. That's where most of the public ministry of Jesus happened. He healed sick people in Galilee. He cast out demons in Galilee and he taught with incredible wisdom in Galilee. So his reputation was beginning to grow. And then he got with his disciples in a boat and they crossed a lake, the Sea of Galilee. And it was an eventful crossing. While they were crossing that lake, a big storm rose up, wind and waves so intense that it threatened to kill them all, to drown them in the lake. And then Jesus said, peace be still. And the wind and waves obeyed him. Then they got to the other side of the lake, to the region of Gennesaret. And when they got there, this is Gentile territory. These are not primarily Jewish people who know how to worship God and who know the scriptures. These are pagan people doing all kinds of pagan stuff. And as soon as he gets over there, a man runs up to them who has been tormented by many demons for a long period of time. But the demons are terrified by the presence of Jesus, which I find very encouraging. Isn't that awesome? Darkness trembles before Jesus, not the other way around. And Jesus drives out those demons, sets this man free. He came to set the captives free. He brings him from isolation to community and restores his right mind. Jesus is always restoring human life and dignity. And then some of the people from that region were scared of Jesus. So they said, please leave, please leave. And Jesus is willing to go, but not until he sends that man as a messenger. The man wants to stay with Jesus. Wouldn't you want to stay with Jesus in those circumstances? But Jesus says, no, go back to your home. Go back to the region of the Decapolis, Tyre and Sidon, and tell what God has done for you. Jesus is going to leave now, but as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see that this man's witness bore fruit. And many Christians are going to come to know the Lord in that region. But now he gets back in a boat with his disciples, and they cross again the Sea of Galilee, and they come back to the west side of the sea, to the region of Galilee, where most of his ministry was, and all the crowd has been waiting for Jesus. They missed him while he was gone. And it says the crowd welcomed him. I like that phrase. Do you feel like welcoming Jesus into our presence this morning? You want to welcome Jesus into your life this morning? Everybody say, welcome Jesus. The truth is that though everybody is welcoming Jesus in this crowd, they're there for a lot of different reasons, aren't they? As we read through the Gospel of Luke, we find that people are coming to him for many different reasons. Some because they are already fully committed to him 
They want to follow him with the rest of their lives. Some just because they're sick and hurting and they've got a lot of hard stuff going on in their lives and they think maybe he can help. He has a reputation as a healer and a miracle worker. Some are coming because they think this man seems to be a great prophet. I want to hear the word of God. Some are coming because they think maybe he's the Messiah. He's the savior we've been waiting for and they want to check it out. And as you know, when there starts to be a lot of hype about something, some people just come to see what all the hype's about, right? They're all coming for a lot of different reasons, but as they are there, they're going to watch Jesus and see Jesus interacting with different people from very different backgrounds. And as Jesus ministers to individuals caring for their needs, he's also ministering to the crowd because whatever reasons they came for, he's showing them something about who he is. And at this point, Luke's gospel really invites us to imagine ourselves in this crowd. And I want to invite you for a second to imagine, why did you decide to come here this morning? Like the crowd that's gathered by the Sea of Galilee, you must have some interest in Jesus or you wouldn't be at church this morning. A whole lot of other people did not come to church this morning. You came. Good job. Everybody tell your neighbor, good job. You must be interested in Jesus. And I want to encourage you to ask the question, what, what do I want from Jesus, though? Why am I here? Those crowds came for many different reasons. And as they're watching him and listening to them, him, he, he's so patient and loving. He helps people in all kinds of different ways. But the way that he talks and acts is forcing all of them to wrestle with two questions that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that I want to bring to your, the forefront of your mind again. The first question is this. Who is Jesus? Everybody say, who is Jesus? I want you to think about that for yourself. That's an objective question. Whoever Jesus is, he is, whether whether we think it or not, whether we feel like it or not. Either he was just some Jewish teacher or he was a prophet or he was the son of God and savior of the world. Who is Jesus? What is his heart? What is he like? And then the second question is this. Who is Jesus to you? Each of you asking the question, who is Jesus to me? Now, that's that's a personal question. I want you to think about it. They're all going to think about it. And as they think about that question, they're going to get an education because immediately people start approaching Jesus with great need. And as they see Jesus responding to some very different people and loving all of them with a powerful love, they're going to get some information about who Jesus is. And then they're going to have to make some choices about who Jesus is to them. Now, let's pay attention to who the people are, the individuals who come up to Jesus today. The first is a man named Jairus. We read in verse 41, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Everybody say Jairus. As a ruler of the synagogue, this means Jairus was a respected member of the community. The the elders, the group of respected, older, wise Jewish men in this community would have appointed Jairus to this role. So he earned the respect of a lot of people. And then as ruler of the synagogue, he had a lot of jobs. He would oversee benevolence ministries that were taking care of poor people in the community. He would oversee any schools connected to the synagogue. So he had a significant role in the education of this community. He would help organize worship services and invite speakers to come teach. So he had a role as a spiritual leader in this community. Jairus was a respected man. Jairus was an influential man. Jairus was probably a devout man who was 
had a reputation for caring about God and caring about people. He was probably a gifted leader who they wanted to entrust with so many important administrative tasks in this community. Jairus was used to people coming to him with problems and he would help them out and solve their problems. And yet in this story, Jairus comes not talking about his confidence or flexing his popularity. He comes with a sense of desperate need. If you look at verse, the end of the verse, verse 41, it says, And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him. That means he begged him to come to his house. Why is it that this man who's so respected and influential, who's always helping other people solve their problems, in this moment, he's humbling himself, he's getting on his knees, he's begging for help. Well, the text tells us it's because his daughter, his only daughter whom he loves, his 12-year-old daughter, is sick and is on the verge of death. There are a lot of things in life that can humble us and show us our desperate need. Probably at the top of that list, or somewhere towards the top, is when parents who really want to care for our children and protect our children are confronted with circumstances that make us realize we don't actually have the power to protect our children as fully as we want to. That can be very scary, very grievous and difficult. So Jairus comes and he's desperate. And he gets on his knees. And he's begging. And what he's begging is, Jesus, come to my house and help my daughter. Come to my house. He's in desperate need. He knows he can't solve his own problem. He believes that Jesus could solve his problem. So he comes and he's humbling himself in faith for Jesus. That's all good, isn't it? Now, if we're reading Luke's gospel, though, we may notice a contrast between Jairus and what he says and another individual, Roman centurion, who a few chapters earlier came interceding for Jesus. To help somebody. I think Ever preached to us about that a few months ago. And if you were here or if you've read the story, you may recall that that Roman centurion came and he did not say, come to my house. Actually, his message was, I don't deserve to have you come under the roof of my house. But Jesus, I know the kind of authority that you have. You don't have to come and be physically present and see my servant and touch my servant to heal him. You could just speak the word. And your words, Jesus, have authority to heal from any distance. You remember that story? And the text said Jesus was amazed. Jesus was amazed at the faith of Jairus. So here's a pop quiz. As faith goes, whose faith was seems to be more mature, stronger? The faith of the centurion or the faith of Jairus? Somebody shout it out. The centurion, absolutely. Jesus said about the centurion, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. And here we see it. The centurion and Jairus were both powerful, influential men who were used to telling people what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And when Jairus comes to Jesus, he knows he has desperate help, but he's still kind of treating Jesus this way. I need you to heal my daughter by coming to my house right now and coming in 
and, and healing her. He's kind of telling Jesus what to do. Jairus is a man of authority, but he recognizes Jesus has more authority than me. So I'm just going to say, just, just say it, Jesus, and she'll be healed. So of the two, Luke's gospel asks us to make the comparison implicitly. And it's definitely the case that the centurion has stronger faith. But I want you to notice something. Does Jesus rebuke Jairus? The answer is no. He doesn't say, we're going to have a teaching moment, Jairus. Why do you think I need to come to your house? What Jesus does is receive the desperate, imperfect faith of this man and immediately respond with compassion and love. Now, here's a lesson here for us, church family. Does your faith have to be perfect for Jesus to respond? Maybe, maybe I need to ask you to testify. Has anybody ever come to Jesus with weak, struggling, confused, imperfect faith, and he answered your prayer? Isn't Jesus good? As a matter of fact, his grace and compassion goes before our faith. We never would have started trusting him if he wouldn't come to, grace, come to us with grace first. And what's beautiful about this story, I'm not worried about the spoiler because you already heard it read a second ago. Okay, Jesus is about to save this little girl. What's beautiful about this story is this. By the grace of God, the imperfect faith of Jairus becomes the instrument that Jesus uses to save the daughter of Jairus. Now, some of you as parents need to hear that word. Isn't this encouraging? Jesus might be choosing your struggling, imperfect, poorly informed faith as his instrument to save your children. And even if you're not parents, some of y'all love some people in the community and you care about them and you feel desperate and you feel like you can't save and you can't help. Anybody ever been there? You just love people and you want to solve the problems and you wish you could make a bigger difference. And here's our text saying you just come to Jesus, be an intercessor, someone who brings their knees to Jesus Christ. You may have weak faith, you may have imperfect faith, but Jesus loves to respond with overwhelming, compassionate power and grace to our weak in perfect faith. Now, before we move on any further, we have to get interrupted because the story gets interrupted. Verse 43 introduces us to another character who's in a desperate situation. It says, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, there's so much about the interactions between this woman and Jesus for us to meditate on. But first, I just want us to do a little comparison and contrast between Jairus and this woman. Because they are very different than one another. What they have in common is they're people in a desperate situation who came to Jesus for help. But let's consider some of their differences. On an obvious level, Jairus is a man. This woman is a woman. There's one. Jairus is popular and well-respected. He's, he's a prominent member of this community, but there are several indications of this text that this woman is very, very isolated. She's alone. For one thing, according to Jewish custom, this discharge of blood that she has experienced would have made her ceremonially unclean. 
And that means when you're ceremonially unclean, that doesn't mean you're sinful, but it does mean there's certain things such as synagogue worship and certain aspects of the social life of the community that you're not allowed to participate in. And if you touch somebody who's ceremonially unclean, then you become ceremonially unclean. And this was a part of Jewish life, which was very inconvenient, but it had a certain teaching function that was about teaching people to respect the holiness of God. However, for her, this became more than inconvenient because she has been in this situation for 12 years. She couldn't come to worship publicly for 12 years. She can't go hang out with her family and friends for 12 years because she would make them unclean. You remember how being isolated for like a year and a half messed all of us up recently? Now imagine 12 years. There's more to say about her isolation, but I'm going to just hold this thought. I'm going to come back to it. Jairus is powerful socially, politically, in a, ver- in a variety of ways. But it's clear that this woman is powerless. Probably as a synagogue ruler, Jairus was a person of at least some financial means, at least a little bit wealthy. But our text tells us she has been impoverished by medical expenses. Some of you know about that. Spent all of her savings, all of her money on physicians, doctors, but none of them could heal her. Everything seems to indicate that Jairus is healthy, but of course she's sick. In short, we can sum it up like this. Jairus is privileged in many, many ways. And this woman is disadvantaged in many, many ways. And now I want you to notice this very important fact. Jesus loves them both. Jesus loves them both. Means he loves women and men, poor and wealthy, sick and healthy, popular, respected and isolated, powerful and powerless. Jesus loves everybody. We need to let that soak in. No matter who you are. If you're very, very privileged or very, very disadvantaged or somewhere in between, Jesus loves you. So everybody help me out. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves the people that you love. He loved them before you loved them. He loves them more than you love them. He's going to take care of them. And he's going to take care of you, even if sometimes it does not feel like it. He loves you. He loves the people you love. Here's the other thing, though. Jesus also loves and values and cares about the people you dislike. He cares about your enemies. He cares about those irritating people in your workplace. Some of y'all had faces pop up into your face and now you're trying to talk into your mind. Now you're trying to talk to Jesus about it. That's okay. Let him pop up. Visualize that face. And here's what I need you to hear. Jesus loves that person. He cares about that person. Most of us tend to give favor and be drawn to people like Jairus. There's a lot of sociological studies showing that we tend to see people like Jairus that have all of his privileges, where often we don't even see disadvantaged people. But Jesus sees both. Sometimes we might react the other way. We've been hurt such that we have resentment towards those who seem to have a lot of comfort and privileges. But here's the thing. Jesus loves both. So here's what 
we need to understand, if we're trying to understand who Jesus is and what does it mean to be followers of Jesus, repeat after me, say, Jesus loves everybody. I don't want you to think about just the comparison and contrast between this woman and Jairus, though. I want you to think about her in relation to Jairus' daughter. They've got some things in common. They're both women. They're both sick. Luke drops the number 12 in for both of them to help us notice Jairus's daughter is 12 years old. This woman has been suffering from this bleeding condition for 12 years. From all the little details that we have in this story, we can assume that Jairus's daughter probably grew up in a very healthy, loving environment, the sort of environment that if you grow up in it, you've got a lot of statistical likelihood of doing well in life, right? She grew up like that, nurtured. But for the whole time she's been growing and living and thriving, this woman has been suffering. And she's been getting poorer and poorer and poorer, and she's been getting more and more and more isolated. And I told you we're going to come back to this issue of isolation in a second, because here's one key difference. Jesus loves, he's very tender with this woman and with Jairus' daughter. He loves both of them. But I want you to notice one key difference here. This little girl has a popular, respected, devout, loving father to intercede for her. Did you hear that? This little girl has a popular, respected, devout daddy who loves her and he's willing to be her advocate and to intercede for her. If you've ever had anybody be an advocate for you, did it make you feel good? Did it help in life? It sure did. But this woman has nobody to advocate for her. She has nobody to intercede for her. I want you to think about the fact that as we read the Gospels, very often, if somebody is really sick or struggling that needs help from Jesus, a friend or a family member shows up to ask on their behalf. The centurion sent messengers to ask for Jesus to come or to speak a word to cure his servant. The paralyzed man had friends that would help him get to Jesus and carry the way. We have various parents who come to Jesus asking for help so that their children could have demons cast out or be healed. Lots of people, the way they get help from Jesus is somebody comes to Jesus on their behalf. Which should remind us again that God wants us to come to Jesus on other people's behalf. He wants us to be those intermediaries for people. But this woman has nobody to come for her. And it's very clear that if she had anybody, she would not be here physically present. She knows as an unclean person that anybody who touches her will become unclean, which means they're going to be mad at her for pressing into this crowd. Okay, she's taking a risk here. It's very clearly her plan to sneak in, touch Jesus's robe and sneak out before anybody sees her. Because she's going to be socially shamed and people are going to get mad at her for coming out here. She doesn't want any attention. She wants to sneak in and sneak out. If she had a dad or a brother or a friend or anybody else who cared about her, who knew Jesus could heal her and she could send them, she would have. But instead, she sneaks in herself. That means she had nobody. She had nobody. Keep that in mind as we continue reading. Verse 45. 
says, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Oh, I skipped an important part. She does sneak in. She touches him. Boom, she's healed. Praise God. (laughs) That's an important part of the story. She's healed. She's healed immediately. Now she's trying to get out. Luke goes over that part so fast that I skipped it, okay? Because he really wants us to pay attention to this interaction. Power went out from Jesus. She's healed. And then Jesus stops and says, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, we can pause. Peter is always saying what everybody's thinking, right? Don't you love to have that guy in the church sometimes? I, I tend to say it. So if you're that guy, I sympathize. I just say it. Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. Blood was flowing out of this woman, and power just flows out of Jesus. Now, the text is not quite clear. What we should think about, does Jesus already know who it is or not? You know, one of the questions, as we're thinking about the incarnation, that Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully human. One of the hard things to wrap our minds around is how is he, at one and the same time, omniscient God, who knows everything, and finite human soul, who the Bible says he grew in wisdom. How do those two things work together? And the question that the whole theological tradition has wrestled with, and the answer we come up with is, I don't know. It's a mystery. I've never been the incarnate son of God, right? So it's difficult. Thomas Aquinas had some good theories about it, but he really didn't know either. None of us know, except for Jesus. But I don't think that's the main point here. What is clear from the text, whether or not Jesus already knew who it was, is that he's calling her out. He wants her to to come public with her faith. It's kind of like when... God in Genesis 3 strolls into the Garden of Eden and says, where are you, Adam and Eve? Did God already know where they were? Yes, he did. But he was calling them out. And that's what he does right here. This is one of the places, by the way, where it's good for us to notice that Jesus is both very, very tender and very, very tough. Sometimes in church we can emphasize the toughness of Jesus, the truth-speaking, prophetic fire of Jesus in a way that obscures how gentle and tender he is. And sometimes we go the other way. We talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and how kind he is, and we miss the fact that he is making people uncomfortable on purpose all the time, right? So Jesus is tough, and Jesus is tender, and we're going to see both of them on full display in this scene, because it's very clear she does not want to come out. But listen, Jesus wants to give her something more than physical healing. He's calling her into a relationship. He's calling her into public confession. He wants to tell her some things about who he is and about who she is. So he calls her, even though it makes her uncomfortable. By the way, sometimes we're going through life saying, I'm going to do this because it makes me feel comfortable. I'm not going to do that because it makes me feel uncomfortable. And maybe it's not the best criteria, right? Jesus calls her into discomfort because he loves her. And it says, When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she was not about to tell it until Jesus was insistent, right? I know somebody touched me. Who was it? But then it says, and the woman saw that when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Why is she trembling? 
It doesn't specify, but we can imagine a lot of reasons. We've already said one, she doesn't want people to get mad at her for coming out here in public and touching them and potentially making them unclean. She may be trembling because now she perceives more clearly than ever that this man is a holy man with supernatural power. Maybe she's also an introvert. Some of y'all, even with none of those other circumstances, if I called you on this stage to testify right now, you would start trembling, right? Some of you just got a heart palpitation. Don't worry, I'm not about to do it. I'm not about to do it. Maybe. I'm just kidding. I'm not about to do it. But just the idea, she's being asked to talk in front of this big crowd. But Jesus calls her into discomfort out of love to make her confession public. And she comes trembling and like Jairus, she falls down before him. She kneels. By the way, we got two kneelers in this text. Can I just have another side sermon? I'm going on all these sidebars. Sometimes I ask permission like y'all can say no. (laughs) Say no, get back to your notes, Pastor. I'm doing it anyway. Okay, here we go. I got the microphone. Sidebar. Sometimes we need to notice what people do with their bodies when they come into the presence of God. Just a little side note here. You're supposed to love God not only with your soul, but also with your body, with your strength. And some of us, it may be helpful for us to learn. You know, we live in a culture that talks a lot about authenticity, but that means we don't do it unless we feel it. And so we may not physically express our worship to God unless we're feeling it in our emotions. But I'd suggest to you that that's backwards. It's much easier for your mind and your will to tell your body what to do than it is to tell your emotions what to do. Amen. Sometimes I try to talk to my emotions and they'd be talking back, acting crazy, right? But if I tell my body to get down on my knees, it usually listens to me. And sometimes if I act with my body first, then my heart will follow. Okay, just throwing this out here. And in the Bible, there's a lot about postures of worship, like clap your hands to the Lord. We had a bro- one brother trying to get us all to clap today. We got to back him up next time. Okay, amen, Genesis. <laughs> uh, sometimes we may think, oh, I can't raise my hands unless I feel it. But, but even though the Bible says, lift your hands up to the Lord. And I just want to say, if you get up in the morning and you're not feeling desperate and humble before God, don't think I've got to I can't get on my knees because that would be inauthentic. Think the authentic thing to do would be to get my body aligned with the truth of who God is and ask my heart to follow. OK, you following with me on this. OK, that was a side note. Let's get back to my notes. What are we supposed to be talking about this morning? OK. She fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people in public why she had touched him. She's laying it all bare. She's laying it all clean. I've been sick for 12 years. I've had a flow of blood. I spent all my money on doctors. Nobody could heal me. I've been isolated, but I've heard the stories about Jesus. And I thought, here's a man who could heal me. The power of God is with him. She testifies and how she had been immediately healed. She gives glory to God, just like the garrison Demoniac from last week. She tells everybody what Jesus has done for her. She testifies. And as she testifies, Jesus gets happy because she's gone public with her faith. And then he responds in verse 48 with what's maybe, maybe my favorite verse in this passage. There's so many good ones that it's hard for me to choose. But look what he says. Verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, everybody say daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There's so much that's so good in verse 48. Let's pick it apart. First of all, he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. Listen, friends. For, you know, Jesus is like in his early 30s at this moment. 
We don't know how old she is. We know that she's been sick for at least 12 years. There's a good chance she's older than Jesus. If she's younger, it's just by a little bit. In this cultural context, it is not a thing that rabbis or prophets call women daughter. They certainly don't call older women daughter. That is not a thing that happens. It's not like a cultural thing. As a matter of fact, not only is this unexpected, for the crowd that's listening in on this conversation, this probably would have seemed at minimum inappropriate. Maybe a little offensive. What does he mean calling her daughter? But Luke is trying to help us to see something that ministered to my soul this week in my office as I was praying and studying this text. Because this is a story about Jesus healing two daughters. This is a story about Jesus saving two daughters. One of them was blessed by God to have a daddy who was powerful and influential and devout and loving, who could intercede for her and take care of her. But this woman has nobody. She has nobody in her life. And when Jesus sees her and hears her confession, the first word out of his mouth is, daughter. In other words, Jesus is saying, I love everybody, but there's some people who have nobody, and I especially claim them as mine. And he's saying to this woman, you may have felt isolated, but you're a part of the family of God. You may not have a daughter like Jairus to intercede for you, but it's okay because I will intercede for you. You may not have somebody like Jairus to protect you, but Jesus says, daughter, I'm going to protect you. He said, the community may reject you, but he says, I want to publicly acknowledge you just in case anybody gets mad. Let them know Jesus of Nazareth says, this one is mine. And church family, I want you to hear that if you're here this morning and you're relating more to this woman than to Jairus or his daughter, and you feel like you don't have an advocate, you feel like you have nobody in your quarter fighting for you, Jesus especially wants to say to you this morning, you're my daughter, you're my son, you're mine, I will be your advocate, I will fight for you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. You just got to be like this woman and come to him with trembling face. Is he always going to keep you comfortable? Probably not. He did it for this woman. But he will take care of you and you will be his. He says, daughter, and then he says, your faith. Everybody say faith. Faith is an important word. Here's what faith does not mean. Faith does not mean you're a super spiritual person who always feels super close to God. In this story, faith means you're a super desperate person who cries out to Jesus for help. Some of us in this room, I know, because we've talked about it, struggle with a false sense of condemnation. Sometimes you feel like your faith faith is fake or you have no faith because you don't feel spiritual. You don't feel like God is close to you. And I want to encourage you, it actually matters very little how spiritual you feel. It's not that big of a deal. A lot of people be feeling spiritual all the time that don't know God, okay? There's a lot of people that come to church 
feeling super spiritual. There's also a lot of people who come to church faithfully and worship God and serve people all the time. And they feel dead inside and they feel like, where are you, God? But God is pleased with their faith. It doesn't matter how much. I'm not saying that I want you to feel not close to God. Who would love to feel close to God all the time? Let, let it, do you know when we're definitely all going to feel close to God all the time? In heaven. Don't y'all want to go to heaven and be with Jesus? Our souls are going to be sorted out. We're going to see him face to face. But this text is a great reminder. Having faith does not mean I feel super spiritual. What it means is I recognize my desperation and I point my desperate need at Jesus. That's all it means. And he says, your faith has made you well. Now, that word well is an important one to think about. Everybody say well. It's going to come up again. But the Greek word here and the next time it comes up here is a word that can be sometimes translated healed and it can be sometimes translated saved. That's how it's usually rendered. One of those two. It can mean your faith has healed you or it can mean your faith has saved you. And one of the things that we lose when we're translated into English is that those two go together. When Jesus comes and people experience his presence and they trust him, he brings a healing that is very deep. Notice this woman got healed physically, but she got more than that. She got saved. He moved her from isolation to community. He moved her from shame to honor, publicly acknowledging to the community. Y'all might have forgotten her, but she's mine. He even put Jairus on hold. I'm going to be honest. I bet Jairus was annoyed during this conversation. Has anybody ever taken your kid to the ER? And there's other people who had the audacity to be at the ER as well. I've taken my kid to the ER quite a lot of times, actually. Thanks be to God. Most of them were minor, but one or two of them was scary. I was really scared for my kids. And I remember sometimes... People in the ER, they work there. I appreciate you, doctors. Just, just so you know how it feels at the other end. Sometimes how calm you are, I'm sure it's the right thing to do, but it stresses us out, right? Uh, we're struggling over here. And y'all are looking all calm and patient, like my kid doesn't need help. Right, 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 right now. And I know, I know ER doctors, I love you. I'm not trying to alienate anybody in here. I'm just telling you what Jairus was probably feeling like, okay? Jairus is stressed and he's probably thinking she's been bleeding for 12 years. My daughter's about to die. And maybe down at some level, even good, faithful, godly Jairus is thinking, I'm not used to people telling me to wait. You know what I'm saying? But but Jesus is saying to the whole crowd, this woman matters. She's worth me stopping for. She's my daughter. He's healing her physically and spiritually. He's calling her also out of a shy faith into a bold public faith. He's teaching her to be his disciple. This is about him saving her. And then that last word, he says, go in peace. Everybody say peace. Jesus restores peace. He restores shalom. That's his mission. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen when the unruly, chaotic waves almost killed people, he spoke peace and they were calm. When the demons were dehumanizing that man, he, he spoke the word and peace was restored. And now she goes in the fullness of his salvation and his restoration. She has peace. And once again, in this moment, our dramatic moment, the story is interrupted. Because verse 49 says, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now, I'm going to have to speed up because I'm almost out of time. But we need to notice, everybody, these are the words that Jairus most feared in his whole life. 
We just heard the worst moment of his life. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But look at Jesus' response, verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this, said, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Believe, believe. That same word again. It's about trust. It's about faith. Jesus is saying, you came here desperate, pointing your desperation at me. Just keep doing that. Keep trusting me. And when he says don't fear, he's not minimizing the grief and the shock. He's not minimizing Jairus' love for his daughter. Because he wants Jairus to recognize that Jesus has the power of salvation. When he says she will be well, it's that same word again. She will be healed. She will be saved. At this point, Jairus doesn't know what that means. And parents, don't you wish we could know what that meant? We don't always know how Jesus is going to save our kids. But he's asking Jairus to trust the tough and tender Jesus. And really, I want you to hear it again. Jesus is saying, Jairus, your imperfect faith. At this moment, it's probably so weak that it feels like no faith. But your imperfect faith is my chosen instrument for bringing salvation to your daughter. Verse 51, Jesus comes to the house. He leaves everybody outside except for Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of disciples, and the girl's two parents. There are professional mourners present. These, these are people that would work at the equivalent of the funeral home for us. When somebody dies, they show up to sing and start a time of lamentation. And when Jesus sees them in verse 52, he says, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. How do they laugh? They don't actually have a lot of personal investment in this mourning situation. These are funeral professionals. They're professional mourners and they know death and they're they're derisive of Jesus. They're mocking him because they it says they know that she was dead and understand the text does not say they thought that she was dead. It says they know that she was dead. And the text makes it clear the little girl is dead. So when Jesus says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping, Jesus is not saying they have misunderstood the medical situation. He's showing us that death is transformed by his presence. One of the things it means to be a Christian family is that our way of viewing death is utterly transformed. Our way of viewing death is utterly changed. It's still an enemy. First Corinthians 15 calls death the last enemy. It's still an enemy. It hurts. Every time it's taken one of my loved ones, it's hurt really, really bad. And I don't look forward to the prospect of my own death. But though death is still a painful reality, the good news of the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. We don't have to fear because we know that death is temporary. And on the other end of the death, Jesus is going to wake us up. So he says, call it sleep. And if you start reading through the New Testament, you're going to start noticing Christians start calling death sleep. And when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he's going to tell them those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, he's going to wake up first. Death is transformed by his presence. So when we know Christ and we believe the gospel, we don't have to fear it. 
He goes into the room and verse 54 says, taking her by the hand. I want you to notice there's two things that you're not supposed to do if you're a Jewish person who's trying to remain clean so that you can continue to be out in public. You're not supposed to touch somebody who's flowing with blood and you're not supposed to touch a dead corpse. But Jesus now intentionally goes, he could have just said, wake up, like he did to Lazarus. But he goes and grabs the little girl by a hand. What does that mean? It means that when unclean things touch Jesus, he doesn't get unclean, they get clean. That's what that means. And in your own life, if you bring your sins to Jesus, you bring your weakness to Jesus, you bring your doubt to Jesus, you touching Jesus doesn't make Jesus dirty. Some of us struggle to come to church, struggle to open our Bibles and read it because we've been sinning. And then we think, I can't bring this into God's presence because I'm too dirty. I'm too ashamed. So you need to hear today, you're unclean doesn't make Jesus dirty. Jesus makes you clean. That's the gospel. That's how it works. He grabs her by the hand and he says to her, child, arise. Little girl, stand up. Verse 55 says her spirit returned to her and she got up at once. I love the practical compassion of Jesus. The next thing it says is that he directed that something should be given her to eat. My, my brother, I heard teach on this passage recently, and he commented here, I, I love the practicality of Jesus. He's like, give her a snack. She's been dead. <laughs> but that's really what he's saying. Give her something to eat. And her parents were amazed. Wouldn't you be church family? And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. He's not ready for this news to become public yet. He still has some things he wants to teach and reveal to his disciples and to the Jewish community before they hear about his resurrection power more publicly than they already have. But I want to end by asking you to put yourself among these witnesses again. Imagine you're in that room. You're the mother. You're the father. You're Peter, James, and John. You've seen him heal the bleeding woman. You've seen him bring this little girl back to life. Could you imagine it? Think about what you're feeling if you're in that scene, if you're in that moment. Think about what you're thinking. How's that going to shape the rest of your life? Think about the two questions with which we started. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Well, this text shows us there's no limit to his power. He loves the very privileged and the very disadvantaged and everybody in between. There's no limit to his love. There's no limit to his power. He's stronger than death because he's the son of God. He's the son of God, the tough and tender one who's going to die on the cross for our sins and rise again victorious over sin, death and Satan. Then you've got to ask, who is he? To you. What the text says is if you want to experience the peace, the shalom, and the salvation of Jesus, all you have to do is trust Him. All you have to do is have faith. Don't say go to church a hundred times and don't sin this week. What it's saying is have faith. And lest we get confused and think that means I have to be a very spiritual person. I can't know if I have faith until a I obey perfectly for a few months. The stories make it clear. Having faith just means I recognize that I'm desperate and I point my desperation at Jesus and say, help. That's all it takes. 
Jesus is ready, willing and able to claim you as his own. And he would love to speak over you what he speaks over the woman in this story, daughter, son. Not only does he want to help you with the problems that you may have brought to him this morning, he wants to make you his own. He wants to give you eternal life, which means knowing God. If you put your faith in Jesus, the one who died on the cross for your sin and rose again, he'll forgive you. He'll give you peace. He'll give you healing that's not just about your body. It's about your soul. And he'll prepare for you a healed world to live with him in the new creation. I want to invite you to stand with me in the presence of Jesus for a moment. In a minute, we're going to respond to the word of God by singing another song. But first, I just want to take a moment to pray. As we so often do, I'll invite you to put your hand in a posture of receiving. Remember, I had that little mini sermon in the middle of my sermon. Sometimes you just got to put your body there, even if your heart's not there yet. If you're willing, I'd invite you to put your hands in a posture of receiving. Just take a minute to close your eyes. And I know that you have your own kinds of desperation. You have sins that need forgiving. You have fears. You have wounds. I do too. I just want to invite you to bring them to Jesus now. Tell him, I'm bringing my desperation to you. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. I want you to imagine his faith, face there with you, looking at you like he looked at the woman and the little girl in this story. Maybe imagine him taking your hand like he did for that little girl. Just bring those needs into the presence of Jesus for a moment, and then I'm going to say a prayer for you. Jesus, we worship you this morning. You are the Prince of Peace. You're the Son of God. You're the Lord. You're worthy to receive praise because you died, made peace for us by the blood of your cross, and then you rose from the grave. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us before we ever had faith in you and for responding with grace to our imperfect faith. Lord, we so desperately need to keep in front of ourselves this picture of who you are that we heard in these stories. And our community needs it. Our city needs it. The world needs it. So as we worship you now, we say, bring your healing to us and make us your instruments of peace. Just like Jairus, his faith was the instrument that you used to bring life to his daughter. Would you make our faith the instrument that you're going to use to bring life to the world? We pray these things in Jesus' name.